0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Plenty of interesting discussion to come for you this hour. You know, we've been considering these carbon pipeline proposals and the controversy surrounding them for years, meaning transporting the liquefied carbon dioxide emissions produced by dozens of ethanol plants here in Iowa to the Dakotas for sequestration, storage, deep underground. Later in the hour, we discuss the possibility of sequestering carbon right here in Iowa. Um, But first, keeping the family business in the family. The dynamics within family businesses have been the subject of several movies and TV shows. In the series, Succession, siblings struggle for control of their father's global media conglomerate. I'm good for this company. I'm, I'm, I'm good for us. You know, we all vote. We keep control. We don't. Then everything's over forever.
2: I don't think you'd be good at it. What I don't, I don't even believe you. I don't believe you. I don't. I don't think that you would be good at this. It doesn't
1: even
0: make any sense. I'm the eldest boy. <laughs> I am the eldest boy. You're not. And you know it, this. It mattered to him. He wanted this to go on.
1: So how do you keep the family business in the family and avoid a myriad of pitfalls? In just a few minutes, tips from Dan Binken of the UN University of Northern Iowa Family Business Center. But first, let's talk with a Des Moines-area father and daughter going through their transition, hopefully with a lot less friction than we just heard. Mark Dahl joins us along with his daughter, Lauren Dahl-Sheeter of Dahl Distributing. Mark and Lauren, welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon. Thank you for having Thanks. us.
4: Yes, thank you very much.
1: Okay, Mark, let's start with you. Um, uh, as uh, tell us first a little bit about your business, a snapshot of what you do. You're headquartered in Des Moines, but you have a number of locations, don't you?
4: Yes, sir, we do. Uh, we we're, Well, Dalton Stripping was started in 1965 by my mother and father. Uh, my brothers and I and sister took it over in 1987. We bought it from him. And so we're second, and obviously there's generations coming. We have operations in Council Bluffs, where we started, Des Moines, and in Spencer, Iowa. And uh, one in Worthington, Minnesota, a small distributorship up there. Mm-hmm. And we're beer distributors. Uh, we sell only to uh, retailers, uh, grocery stores and bars and so that have licenses by the state.
1: Mm-hmm. So your drinks, beers, is what you're transporting?
4: Yes. Yes, beer uh, and uh, some uh, alcoholic beverages now uh, with uh, the, the chip laws getting changed a few years ago where we can sell uh, liquor by the drink in a can form. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, we have some non-alcoholic brands also, too, some uh, energy drinks and pops uh, from a company in Minnesota.
1: Yeah. Lauren, uh, give us a sense as we get to know uh, Dahl Distributing a little bit more. How big is it? What's the value of your company, number of employees, uh, sales, that kind of thing?
3: So we have about 320 employees, depending on seasonality. Um, The summer is our biggest time frame. Um, obviously a lot of events going on. um, So we'll we'll hire a few more people during that time frame. Um, But we are, like Mark said, to spread across um, Iowa. We cover about 80 percent of the population in the state and then a a small portion in Minnesota. um, And we're always looking to grow.
1: Yeah. So over 300 on your payroll. That's a a larger payroll. This is not a small company. Uh, Mark, when did you, you say, you know, it was passed on from your parents to you. When did you first having, start having discussions about transitioning leadership from you to others in the family?
4: Well, that's interesting you say that. I mean, we started the business, I was 27 when we took over the business and bought it from my father but, uh, and my brothers and I and my sister. But since then, uh, we've gotten fourth, just third generation started much like my brothers and I and my sister started in the warehouse when we were kids washing trucks, jumping on in the summertime, riding with routes, uh, learning the business. Uh, And when Lauren and uh, Andrew start traveling around on summer vacations, we always stopped at breweries all over the country and met with owners. They've got, unfortunately, got to, fortunately or unfortunately, they got to go to every brewery that we went to on vacation. Mm. So learned a lot about our business back then and learned basically uh, by working with our great team of people at Doll Distributing uh, every day out in the store. So, Part of our deal is go to school, get your degree, uh, go out and uh, do two different jobs, go out and apply for two different places, go see what the world's real world is like and be uh, and then come back and 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 apply for a job just like anybody at Dahl would. And you'll move up to your system through then. So that's that's we always thought that was best. Go out and see the see what else is going on and, and learn from other businesses.
1: Mm-hmm. What did it look like from your angle, Lauren, growing up? When did you know you wanted to stay in the family business, continue it?
3: I think for me it was something that I've thought about for my entire life. Um, I I thought it's such a great legacy to be able to continue um, with my grandfather and grandmother starting it and just always knew that that's something I wanted to continue. But I I really enjoyed the aspect of going outside of the, the business for a couple years just to see what else is out there. Um, but at the end of the day, realized that this was the company for me.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and Mark, at this point, you want to stop completely. What is your status, or currently, and do you see in the future?
4: Well, we're transitioning. So, I, one of the things my father did for us was when he left, he left, and, and so he, it was a pretty much a clean break. And now uh, we we just learned a lot on our own. But uh, I think we're trying to help them go through the system a little bit. We have uh, four in the in the. Third generation, they're going to be part of the company. So, and a possible fifth. So, we're helping everybody get through the transition, and I want to be sure it's smoothly. So, I'll be around for just a little while, as long as they want me, and uh, then uh, then I'll be. We'll make a clean break.
1: Mm-hmm. Lauren, tell us about the um, uh, h- how this is set up, the structure, the management structure currently.
4: So yeah. Uh, so go ahead, Lauren. I'll let you go on this. Thank uh, you.
3: So for our. Third generation. We, we've done it a little bit different than the first or second generation. Um, with four members of our third generation involved in the company right now, we want to make sure that the weight is distributed evenly across all of our shoulders. Right, it, it takes all of us to run this company, and so um, we don't have we don't name a CEO. We don't name a COO. We're all considered managing partners as a third generation, and we believe that moving forward, that's the best the best route because we all need to make sure that where the end game is to push the company forward.
1: Yeah. Mark, Mark, what do you think about deciding on that structure for managing partners?
4: I I, I like that. I I think it's smart for, and they've set, they've done a fantastic job of communicating with each other, right? So I think you were playing (laughs) uh, shows, uh, the music earlier when we came on and there was, you know, always a lot of it. There's infighting in family businesses, no doubt, right? It's it's tough. It's harder than, than any other type of business because you have not only the family dynamics but you have the business dynamics but i've loved what they've done they've sat down and had weekly meetings talked it out know that everybody's not good in every phase of the business but you're good in some pieces and let's 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 go to your strengths so i I appreciate what they're doing i think it's a it's a fresh look at looking at business and being sure that that their people they work with at doll are involved in all these places right that that we're listening to our team, and because they're the they're the experts out there.
1: Mm-hmm. Lauren, when you and the other managing partners, Andrew and and the others, don't see eye to eye, and perhaps this is early days, uh, a premature question, but how do you tackle disagreements? Do you have a a process, an agreement that you all stick to? Do you uh, <laughs> when, when when you've got a fork in the road, to vote democratically, or how do you tackle it?
3: So that was something that we. Sat down and discussed from day one when we realized as a third gen that we all wanted to be a part of the business. Uh, we all sat down and talked about our goals and where we saw the company just so that everybody knew that if we do have a disagreement, where everybody's coming from and in, in their mindset. And over communication has been key. Um, just talking through every decision that we make and why we're making that decision, what our thought process is. That has been our number one mm.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I suppose just being honest about your strengths and weaknesses each of you uh Lauren is is a big thing. You you can't go in uh to to such an operation and um <laughs> have an inflated view of yourself uh, in an area where you're really not that good, right? You 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 have to look each other at each other as managing partners and say what uh, you're good at this, you're not so good at this. Was that difficult?
3: Um, it it was cuz we really had to to think about your strengths as a, as an individual. And you might think that you're better at something than other people see you as, but, um, it's good to get their feedback as well as, as, you know, this from an outside perspective as what they see, what we're good at. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just that communication and, and, and I'm uh, talking it through has been, been great.
4: Yeah.
1: Mark, did you turn to the UNI Family Business Center for any help?
4: I'll tell you what they've been. Thanks for asking that question. Uh, my daughter Lauren actually got me involved in it, and and what that what the doors they've opened for us to sit down and talk to other family businesses in the state of Iowa. It's been fantastic. I know a person of mine with businesses out of state that they would not have this kind of opportunity to do that. And you and I, mittens has been has been just unbelievably great about setting up meetings. I mean, we've got to meet the Kemmons. We've been to see the people at fairway uh you know we just last week we were up in omaha or in in uh, ames at uh ag leader fantastic family businesses that are going through their own issues right and they're willing to share them and be very open uh with their how they've got to where they are today and what made them successful and and or things that they've hit the wall with right and willing to discuss that too so uh, that they've been a great asset Mm-hmm.
1: so it sounds like uh, if the family business entered you and i had been around when you inherited or had the fa- family business passed to you that would have been a help
4: oh man it would have been fantastic we really didn't have that asset right and in opportunity and and I suggest that any family business in the state that has a has a chance you're going through no no matter your size no matter where you're at in this in the in the succession piece of the equation that you take advantage of these uh, of that that opportunity you and i
1: Okay. Uh, we'll be back after a short break, and we'll continue to talk with Mark Dahl and his daughter, Lauren Dahl-Sheeter. Uh, she's man- a managing one of the managing partners, uh, Mark Dahl, and owner of Dahl Distributing. We're learning about their history as an example of uh, how succession in family businesses takes place. And when we come back, we will talk with the director of the University of Northern Iowa's Family Business Center, Dan Beankin. He'll share some tips um, uh, that evidently these two have found super valuable. Uh, That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including above and beyond cancer.
1: We're back midstream in this edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, continuing to talk about the challenges of keeping family businesses in the family over uh, generations. And uh, earlier we heard a little clip from uh, the award-winning series Succession, uh, Family Dynamics and Family Businesses, the subject of several movies and TV shows. Here's uh, a little clip from another one, Arrested Development. Maybe you're a fan of it. It follows the dysfunctional Bluth family, after the patriarch and helm of the family real estate business is imprisoned for crimes related to the business. You know, I parked in the same spot for the last five years. I was there on time every single day. I was Mike. so loyal. I worked so hard. Why didn't you just put me in charge? Michael,
4: listen to me. These guys, the SEC, they've been after me for years. I put you in charge. You're going to be wearing one of these orange yeah. jumpsuits too. I could have helped You'd you. You'd be an accomplice. Me. No. It had to be your mom. Cannot arrest a husband and wife for the
1: same crime. Yeah, I don't think that that's true, Dad. Really? I got the worst attorneys. A clip from Arrested Development. Lauren Dahl Sheeter is with us, managing partner at Dahl Distributing. Her father. Mark Dahl, uh, an owner of Dahl Distributing, uh, still with us. Uh, let's add to our conversation Dan Beenkin, director of the UNI Family Business Center. He's also an instructor of family business management. Dan, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate your time.
1: By the way, are you a fan of Succession and or Arrested Development? Uh, <laughs> you have to be, right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> In fact. Uh, you know the succession. We use that that uh, that uh, show in our class to to uh, highlight some some issues that can come up for family business, and mm-hmm. so the, the kid the students love that as well, of course. So, yeah, yeah very, popular very popular show.
1: Yeah, Dan. So we just heard. Uh Mark and Lauren's story of transition still underway. Give us your reaction to what they've done, and we'll turn to the resources that your center has in just a moment, but I'm wondering, how typical is their case?
2: Um, I want to say that I hope their case is very typical, but... Um, uh, f- Fortunately for me, maybe unfortunately for a lot of family businesses, um, conflict is a big part of 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 transition. Hmm. Um, and so, I applaud the dolls for how well they have done with it. I think a major, major piece of that is because of the communication that they that they have utilized um, between generations. Um, a lot of families um, uh, are more passive with communication, more reactive with communication. And thus it creates conflict and and problems. And so, um, Mm -hmm. you know, at our center, that's what we're trying to do is really work with families on how to how to switch that paradigm.
1: Yeah. I think I heard Lauren use the word over communicate. So when in doubt, make sure everybody's on the same page and then make sure, again, everybody's on the same page so that there can be no misunderstandings. Dan, is that is that what you're communicating here?
2: Oh, absolutely, Ben. There's um, ass- assumptions are always the killer of things. Um, assumptions on on the next gen's part about what succession is going to look like. Assumptions by the current gen. Um, we've worked with a family business uh, for a few years here in Iowa. They've been around for almost a hundred years, and one thing that uh, their current uh, management uh, says is uh, within the family is a-, a phrase that I like to quote, which is clear is kind and unclear is unkind. Mm. Um, You know, (laughs) essentially, how do we make sure that everybody knows what's going on rather than leaving things in in gray areas?
1: Mm -hmm. Zoom out a little bit to introduce us to your center, Dan. Many of our listeners will, uh, this will be the first time they've heard about the UNI Family Business Center. What's your mission there?
2: Yep. Uh, Our mission is, uh, I would say, pretty simple. We want to keep Iowa family businesses family-owned. So, Um, You know, that's our simple statement. Of course, it's much more complex than that sounds, but um, Iowa is very dependent upon family-owned companies. They contribute almost 80% of all new jobs in the state. Um, Family businesses are incredibly sticky to the Iowa economy, and our mission is to help these families learn best practices, interact with each other, learn from their peers about how to make these transition handoffs, these baton handoffs. Um, Quite often, families want to think that it's going to be a very quick, simple process, and um, much like, and I can only assume, but much like uh, tipping over a Coke machine. It doesn't take one push. You've got to rock (laughs) that thing back and forth for a while before things actually happen.
1: (laughs) All right. Talk about the different types of family dynamics you have to deal with. Uh, You mentioned conflict, uh, dysfunction, and and, uh, we're getting a great sense that Lauren and Mark have avoided a a lot of that. Uh, Also with, I have to assume, some good practices, just perhaps harmony in that family as well. But let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Uh, When do you have someone seeking uh, a family business, seeking advice, and then red flags start to appear for you? What happens? Sure.
2: Yeah, oftentimes it's... um... You know, it's the next gen that's that's trying to take over um, and and trying to get get a hold of the ship, I would say. The current gen um, is no longer in that early 60s age range, and they've, you know, they've blown past 65, 70, maybe even 75, and they're still running the company on a daily basis. Um and if you can put yourself in the shoes of that person, I often refer to them as Founder Frank or Founder Francine. But you know that person maybe started the company; their name is on the company um, signage, everything that they have for an identity. A lot of it is wrapped up in that company, and so letting go of it is incredibly hard for them. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we we see the next gen coming in, thinking, "Well, oh, you know, I'm going to be taking over. I'm going to be calling the shots." and all of a sudden, they're in their 40s or, or maybe even older, and they're no longer really what you would consider young and next-gen type. And and that's where we see a lot of frustration happening is that tug-of-war of succession planning.
1: Yeah, th- this played itself out with Lauren and Mark, but how? Uh, what difference does it make when the elder business owner, passing it off, passing it down, um, stays in the picture versus uh, makes a clean cut of it and, and exits the business and after some period of transition.
2: Yeah. I, when when the older generation stays in the business, if they're the ones that are calling the shots and, and you know, wearing that CEO title, it, it can create confusion for employees is one of the big things. Um, you know, it can create power dynamics within the company. It can create... Uh, Issues where employees will, you know, um, if I don't hear what I want to from, from the, the mom or dad, then I'll go talk to the kids type of thing to get mm. what I want. An um, end
1: run can, or something like that.
2: Yep, great. You know, and if, you've, if you're at, at familiar at all with the, with the show Succession, I mean, there's a lot of that that takes place. And, and that's certainly a, a reality in real life as well of, of what family businesses can, can have happen.
1: On that point, uh, going around to, to a different source as, as an employee or perhaps a manager under you, Lauren uh, and, and Mark. Lauren, have you, have you experienced that, or did you have that in your, your code with your three other managing partners, h- how to prevent <laughs> attempted end runs?
3: <laughs> yeah, um, that is something that we did discuss prior, prior and uh, we try and, and make sure that um, our, our team just feels comfortable coming to either, any of us, um, and and... Knowing that we'll we'll all talk amongst them, each other and make the decisions and and uh, make the best decision for the company and get back with them.
1: Mm-hmm. But, but but Lauren, what if you know someone comes to you beneath you and mm-hmm. and uh, and gets a no and then goes to another person? How do you how do you deal with that?
3: Um, the, we we have had have had instances of that, but um, just like I had um, referred to before, the communication we we all have to know what's going on within the, the company. And at all times, and over communicating what decisions have been made already, and and what decisions need to be made um, or need to be laid out mm-hmm. um, from the get-go.
1: Dan, tell us a little bit more about what success looks like in practice when it's passed from the first to the second, on to the third generation, as it is in this case.
2: Yep, right, exactly. And and you know, I I would raise the dolls up. Um, in a celebratory fashion, because they are beating the statistics. Only about twelve percent of all family businesses make it from the first generation to the third generation. Twelve um, yeah, percent—that's—that's that's like yeah. one in one in ten, isn't it? Exactly, and and that takes out all the instances of you know businesses that fail because of business failures. So these are all business failures as a result of family dynamics, family mm. tension, family power struggles, etc. Um, and so, you know, I would just first point out that it's incredibly tough to get just to the third generation, uh, of ownership, but, you know, some of the best practices out there, one of the big ones is, um, is having an advisory board for your business and, um, you know, n- nonprofits certainly always do that and, and, uh, big fortune 500 companies do that, but family, family businesses, especially the size of firms that we're working with, they often overlook, uh, the uh, power of an advisory board as a opportunity to, to have uh, truly objective voices in the room, helping with strategic planning and succession planning. So for the listeners today, that's the one big one that I would really stress was would be the importance of an advisory board?
1: Mm-hmm. What do you do in the question when you have several managing partners? Four in this, in the case of Dahl Distributing here, but say it's a family member, uh, family members, uh, all with different strengths and weaknesses. How do you have that discussion? How, uh, Dan, do you encourage that discussion about, uh, you know, if you're the firstborn son or firstborn daughter, um, you know, perhaps it lines up with leadership. Um, uh, but perhaps it doesn't. How do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, and I w- I would say too that if if you've seen one family business, you've seen one family business. So they're not all they're not all the same. Of course, everybody's going to be different in this regard to leadership. And I would say, Ben, that um, you know, for for the Doll family, one thing that I'm sure is a big key for them is having very regular family-based business meetings, I'm sure at least on a weekly basis, where where the managing partners are touching base about about employee issues, about strategic issues, about fires that need to be put out, and how they're going to respond to those so that they're all coming from a, a common voice. Um, you know, in, in other cases, as you pointed out with your question, we, we get family businesses where the the next gen might be four or five siblings, and and it's not necessarily the oldest that takes over. Um, in, in you know, in those cases, you know, we've got to do a great job of communicating as a family on the why of what's going on, of of who's taking over. Um, but but family meetings are, are critical to I think that to family harmony um, and and longevity, and are often an overlooked piece of of of, of how to. Uh, Be successful as a family business. Yeah,
1: Mark Dahl, you seem to be uh, making this transition so well. But I want to have you take us to so that we 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 may learn to a point of what do you call as a point of dysfunction or perhaps a heated argument if that would happen there. How did you approach it? I wonder if you can pull out an example for us.
4: You know, as a second generation, right? We we did things differently when we started business. and uh, kind of you know pushed our way through it sometimes. And some of our arguments would get a little heated, right? Who's going to do this? What happened? You got into my space. But I've not seen the third generation do that. They've been very – because they got ahead of it, they sat down and talked about how we're going to react to each other. Uh, we're going to treat everybody just with respect, just like we do our team, and, uh, and do it the right way, right? And, then I, and I think – uh, maybe back when we were starting in the in the 80s, right? It was, you know, aggressive. Let's get in your face. Let's do that kind of thing. And and they did it right. They sat down and discussed it and went through it. And uh, I'm not, you know, I, I anytime I have an issue with my, my two children now, you walk in. Here's the here's how it is. What do you think? I need your opinion on this and, and treat them with respect, just like uh, like you do with any other team member.
1: Mm. Lauren, what about that assessment? Is that the way you do things? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dan, back to you. Give us another example. I I think you have an example where, uh, you know, and and Mark uh, emphasized this too, and I've heard it from family farms too, kids growing up on the farm, go out into the world, have a different experience than if you still feel like it, come back, take over the the family farm or the family business. Uh, Why is that important, uh, Dan?
2: Yeah, that's another, I would say, best practice, Ben, is is um, getting some uh, out-of-the-company experience. We, we uh, wrap that into something larger that we would call family governance. And so the families themselves are, are actually putting together some self-governance policies. Um, and the putting together of those documents is is really what's, what's critical for family harmony, for getting things out there in the open to talk through. One of the big governance policies is in employment policy and Mark alluded to the one that they evidently have which is um, if you want to work in the business you need to go out you need to earn a degree um, and it sounds like for them you need to uh, work in a couple different uh, third you know other uh, other places um, we see others where they have to uh, maybe work somewhere else long enough to earn a promotion before they can come back um, but certainly that Ability to work for somebody else where your name last name is no longer on the door and you're just another employee So to speak is incredibly powerful. I think for that next generation to see a little bit of how the other half lives How things are done in other companies bring fresh perspective and ideas back to the business? Um, It usually creates a lot more buy-in from the the current employee base and things like that so Mm -hmm you know, that that's another huge, I would say, best practice that we really try to encourage our families to to strongly consider doing with their next gen.
1: Mm-hmm. Dan, I'm sure we've uh, piqued the interest among a, a number of listeners finding out more about your UNI Family Business Center. Um, uh, when is it appropriate to turn to the Family Business Center and, and what resources do you have available?
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for this opportunity. I would say... Um, I think Mark said this earlier, but we really would love to see our families get engaged before there's a, I call it a Jerry Springer moment. Maybe that dates me a little bit, but if you remember the Jerry Springer sure, show, yeah, they would yeah. throw chairs at each other. You know that. I, I've certainly seen objects thrown at people during uh, consulting projects that I've been on with families, so it's not that far-fetched. But um, I would say if, if families could come in before those moments happen, they're certainly going to be in a much better place. Um, so, like, like, like I said earlier, proactive communication is always a better place to come from than, than the reactive issues. Um, uh, they can, you know, we have uh, speakers on a on a regular basis. In fact, uh, this I think this next speaker that we'll be having for our breakfast speaker series is the uh, the Kathy family. And um, if you're not familiar with the Kathy family, you're probably familiar with their restaurants called Chick-fil-A. Oh, yeah, And so oh, they'll yeah. be they'll be talking about their uh, next-gen development okay. and how they do things.
1: Dan, we have to go. You hear the succession theme okay. music there. Director of the UNI Family <laughs> Business Center, Dan Beanken thank you. Lauren Dahl-Sheeter and Mark Dahl, thank you so much for being open about your experience. We wish you continued success uh, with your business now passed on to the third generation. Dahl Distributing, thank you, Mark and Lauren.
3: Thank you for your time.
4: You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: We'll be back in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News.
0: This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. I don't know how many times we've talked about it on this program, also our news segments as well. Carbon pipelines, the controversies surrounding them, uh, the idea of transporting the liquefied carbon dioxide emissions um, from dozens of ethanol plants here in Iowa to the Dakotas for sequestration deep underground. Uh, This is in order to keep those carbons out of our atmosphere and to mitigate climate change. Uh, But... What if you didn't need to build those hundreds of miles of pipelines to transport it out of the state? What if you could store it, sequester the liquefied carbon dioxide emissions right here in Iowa with much shorter pipelines? Would that be a good thing? Is Iowa's geology suitable for that? Joined now by Ryan Clark. He's a geologist with the Iowa Geological Survey at the University of Iowa. Ryan, welcome to the program.
5: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me.
1: You are, I understand, a, uh, the Iowa Geological Survey's bedrock specialist. What does that mean?
5: Well, the field of geology is pretty broad. Um, so the the part of geology that I specialize in is the actual rock formations themselves. So the bedrock formations like the limestone and sandstone and things like that. So that's that's what I tend to, to work in here at the IGS.
1: Mm-hmm. Before we get to the question of the suitability of Iowa or certain parts of Iowa's geology for carbon sequestration, I wonder, Ryan, if you can take us back in time. Give us a sense of Iowa's Geology, geology. What, what's underneath us here in Iowa, and how did it form?
5: Well, I, I like to, to use the elevator analogy. If you were to take an elevator and, and go down, uh, what would you run into? Mm-hmm. And, you know, over most of Iowa, we have unconsolidated sediments, things that aren't bedrock, but they're, you know, your, your soils, your sand, gravel, um, glacial deposits primarily— And those can be anywhere from just a few feet to several hundred feet thick. And then once you descend down through that, you run into bedrock, which the majority of the bedrock in Iowa is sedimentary rocks. So these are rocks that were formed from sediment settling on the bottom of an ocean. And we've been covered by an ocean multiple times in the geologic past. And those sediments range anywhere from your typical limestones and dola stones to shales, sandstones, things like that. And that's the vast majority of the bedrock that we have in Iowa. Um, but if you were to go even deeper below all of those rocks, you would run into what we call the basement or you know the crystalline basement rocks that make up the North American continent. Um, these are igneous and metamorphic rocks primarily. Um, and they are a billion years old or even older. And, and that's kind of what you would see if you were to descend down below your feet, just about anywhere in Iowa, mm-hmm. um, you would run into that sort of scenario.
1: Mm-hmm. And in general terms, by what you're describing, the deeper you go, the harder, the less porous the rock becomes. Is that a general, is something general we can say?
5: Well, no, probably not. You know the the sedimentary rocks that I that I described. You know those are anywhere from 540 million years old to 90 million years old, um, and it really doesn't depend particularly on the age of the sediments. I mean, there are some, some 500 million year old sandstones that when you see them at an outcrop, you can just scrape them off. Mm. Um, so it, yeah, the, the depth of the age doesn't necessarily equate to how hard or how porous they are. Okay. Um, it, it really boils down to the actual type of rock um, that it is. And if that rock type has porosity or permeability um, or how is it put together, how is it cemented together?
1: Okay, with that bit of a primer on Iowa's geology, uh, the question, how suitable is it here in Iowa for carbon dioxide sequestration?
5: Well, that, yeah, that, so that's a very good question, one that I've been, I've been working on for you know, a good four years now is, you know, there's several factors that come into play in terms of carbon sequestration. And probably one of the most important aspects is the depth. So as you mentioned before, when the CO2 is captured, um, it's, it's liquefied, which means that it is compressed under high pressure to turn it from a, a gas to a liquid. Well, in order to maintain that CO2 in a liquid phase, you do have to inject it uh, a certain depth, at least 2,600 feet under the ground surface. And that depth is needed to keep that CO2 as a liquid and not allow it to degas, and then it's harder to control or to um, containerize. So that depth of 2,600 feet is, is really important. Um, a lot of the carbon sequestration that you, you hear about in the Dakotas, say, or in the Illinois Basin, for example, they're injecting into aquifers. They're, they're sandstones and, and limestones that have porosity and permeability, which means that there's already water in those rocks. Um, the difference being is that the water in those rocks are really mineralized. And so one of the, um, constraints on whether you can inject CO2 into something, uh, is, is the water in that aquifer considered drinkable or not? If it's drinkable, then you cannot inject CO2 into it. And that's an EPA regulation. Mm. So you need to have the depth and then you also have to have an aquifer with water in it that is too poor quality to, to drink.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. To talk about some of the other hazards, the other kinds of potential hazards for storage underground. Uh, like w- what happens to liquefied CO2 even at a high pressure deep beneath the ground over time? Did, could it pose a, a hazard at some time in the future? I know we, we talk about nuclear waste being buried in salt mines and things like that. So do we, is it the same sort of thinking that has to go into this?
5: Yes, absolutely. I mean, anytime you inject something underground, uh, you do have certain hazards that you have to be aware of and and monitor and mitigate. Um, I always like to tell folks that injecting underground is nothing new. It's nothing new to Iowa. There are places where we actually inject natural gas in in underground um, aquifers and formations that are then you know withdrawn when we need uh, more natural gas, like in the winter time. So, injecting is not uh, necessarily a new thing. And so the hazards that you really have to be mindful of when you're injecting anything underground under pressure is is that injection well built in a certain way so that um, it doesn't fail and cause, in this case, CO2 to come you know leaking back up alongside or within the well column. So that's that's a big one. Um, you also wanna identify if there are any faults in the area. If you're injecting in an area that is prone to faults, then those faults, which are, are weaknesses in the rock formations that kind of, you know just imagine a crack um, and it's it's a zone of weakness that if the CO2 can get to that fault, it can generate maybe micro seismicity. So some folks might be aware of the term induced seismicity. That term is, is primarily used when we're talking about um, fracking for petroleum production. But it's a similar sort of um, hazard if you were to inject CO2 is make sure that you're not waking up those faults and generating seismicity where there otherwise wouldn't have been. So those are kind of some of your main um, hazards. And then obviously making sure that you're not impacting any uh, overlying aquifers that are used for drinking.
1: Yeah. With, with the imagery that we can take deep underground, how confident are we, are you, that, you know, you know the geography, the geology going down uh, very, very deep to be sure that you can answer those questions with confidence and, and inject it in the right areas?
5: Yeah. I mean, obviously, we want to gather as much information as we can um, in order to increase that confidence. And you know, one of the things uh, that I've been trying to do over these last several years is is raise awareness and try and and get support for doing research, which means collecting new data. Um, simply for the fact that I don't feel like we have enough data uh, to say that we can or that we can't store in Iowa. Hmm. So because there's so many unknowns, um, you know, we, we really need to investigate further, but. The data that we do have suggests that there are rock formations that are deep enough uh, that underlie large swaths of the state that I think there, it really warrants um, further investigation to be able to say if we can or if we can't.
1: And I understand you are part of the Midwest Region Carbon Initiative, and that's what this is all about.
5: Yeah, so the Department of Energy does uh, the, the majority of the regulation and, and also research funding for anything related to carbon sequestration. And so one of the things that they did um, quite a long time ago was uh, try to fund some of these regional consortia where they try to get folks from academia and and, and state surveys and, and the like to, to get together and try and tackle these issues on a regional um, sort of perspective. And so... Uh, the regional initiative that we're currently a part of is the Midwest Carbon um, Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative (MRCI), um, and we are the westernmost state, so it extends to the east. And really, what it's meant to do is pool together resources um, and and gather data, uh, you know, collaborate with folks, and and come up with ways that we can further the the mission of of finding places to safely. Uh, store CO2 that is sourced from within our region.
1: Mm -hmm. The carbon pipelines to the Dakotas uh, have been so full of of, um, controversy, eminent domain, you know, finding a path for all these pipelines across the Iowa landscape. Would this offer less of those types of problems if it were to be found after more research that parts of Iowa would be um, suitable for sequestration?
5: Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not a I'm not a pipeline expert. Um, There's a lot of of, you know modeling and engineering that goes into that sort of figuring out source to sink relationships. But I I have to believe that if we were to find suitable storage sites within Iowa, um, that certainly some of the CO2 sources near that site would probably prefer to send their CO2 to that location. Versus putting it in a pipeline and sending it elsewhere. So, you know, the the vision that I see is if if we've got you know maybe maybe half uh, of the ethanol plants in the state of Iowa to the point where they can store their CO two here in Iowa, I would like to believe that they would probably um, prefer that. Of course, if the economics works out, um, um, as opposed to to you know sending that in a pipeline.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a timeline for this? Uh, you, you said there needs to be more research to determine if Iowa, any place in Iowa would be suitable here. But we all know that with a, with huge projects like that, there's a, a many more factors than just the suitability of the geology <laughs> here. Uh, how do you evaluate that and then the likelihood that Iowa may soon, at some point uh, sequester its own carbon?
5: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, the the Department of Energy it has a funding program called the Carbon Safe Program that is specifically meant to provide funding to help support the research. And so, if we were to go that route, um, they take a phased approach where, in the initial phases, phase one and phase two, you're you're collecting data, and that does include, in phase two at least, drilling um, to get uh, rock samples and and groundwater samples and do a lot of modeling um, to really figure out if that certain location is suitable or not. By the time you get to phase three, phase four, you're actually starting to do injection testing. Um, I'm looking at trying to uh, see if we can secure one of these phase two grants and those are typically a two-year project. So you're looking at two years to gather the information and, and sort of build the the modeling to see if if it can happen and then maybe another year or two of injection testing. So, you know, it can be up to four years before we know for certain that we can do it, uh, you know, sequestration to, on a commercial scale at, at a specific site.
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: that's of course using the, the government funding model. There's, um, I, I always have to tell people, well, obviously if we had a blank check, we could probably solve this a lot quicker, <laughs> of All course, right. but um, that's, that's the timeline that I've been, working under is, is trying to kind of go two to four years.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go, I have to ask, we've got a couple minutes left, um, you know, when we consider that um, Iowa has most of the ethanol plants uh, in, in the country, why was it decided then that the Dakotas would be the place, or I think in Illinois too, uh, what were the interests driving those decisions where the, what we talk about now is the sequestration sites would be?
5: Well, you know, I think you have to look at the at the petroleum industry number one because the the petroleum industry has been doing carbon sequestration um, since the 70s. You know, they use it for something called enhanced oil recovery uh, in certain oil fields, and so it turns out that a lot of the research that's needed in developing petroleum fields is very similar to the research needed to develop carbon sequestration uh, storage targets. So that's certainly the case in the Dakotas where they're. Um, you know, there, there is an oil field up there and they've done a lot of characterization. Hmm. So they have a a wealth of knowledge about the deep geology up there. So it was really well suited for uh, something like carbon sequestration on the Illinois side. Um, they also have a wealth of knowledge regarding their deep geology, uh, for various reasons, not just petroleum, but also groundwater and other things. What we're missing kind of what leaves Iowa kind of a little bit late to the game, I guess, is that we haven't had any specific industry like the petroleum industry to provide a lot of the deep geologic um, data and, and knowledge that comes with that. So that's why we kind of need to, to figure out ways to collect that data ourselves. Now,
1: Mm -hmm. Ryan, in the final minute that we have here, you've had discussions uh, with Iowa legislators. I understand. What have those discussions been like? Very briefly, Uh, uh, are Iowa legislators open to this uh, providing funding? I guess that would be needed, wouldn't it? Uh,
5: Yes, we've we've definitely discussed it with with multiple legislators, um, and and there is interest. I'll tell you for sure that they're they're very intrigued by this idea. Um, but you know, uh, funding has not been offered or, or made available to this point. So it's a conversation we continue to have, and I can say that that we reach more and more people um, and, and gain more and more interest and attention. And, and programs like this are only going to help that. So yeah. I certainly appreciate this opportunity.
1: Yeah, right. So walk us through quickly at the end the, the steps: more research followed by a decision, followed by possible uh, action.
5: Yeah, so uh, ideally, we, we secure some funding somehow, we select a site, or depending on funding, ho- however many sites we can afford to investigate, we would like to site them next to CO2 sources, be that uh, ethanol plant or what have you. Um, and then, yeah, we've got to collect the data, which could be geophysical data, um, certainly drilling and doing some laboratory analyses and, and modeling to get to the point where we can say this site is going to work or this site's not going to work, okay. and then just kind of go, go from there.
1: Thank you. It's fascinating, Ryan, a fascinating field of work you have there. Ryan Clark, geologist with the Iowa Geological Survey at the University of Iowa. Thank you for joining us, Ryan.
5: It was my pleasure, Ben. Thank you.
1: Tomorrow on this program, we'll have two University of Iowa scholars, law scholars, walk us through cases, some of the most important ones before the U.S. Supreme Court. Today's River to River, produced by Danny Gere with help from Samantha McIntosh, Keaton Scoville, and Tony Sarabia. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.